Well, it's uh, my delight to welcome uh, Dr. Stephanie Kramer back to our pulpit uh, this morning. Uh, you'll notice, if you've been paying attention, that Stephanie's wearing the duds for the first time today. Um, and that's because she is in process of being ordained to the diaconate, uh, which will happen in the spring. So um, she's currently going to be learning some of the liturgical things in this church as she prepares for that. Um, and uh, she has been being prepared as a preacher for several years. Um, so, you know, she did her whole med school and served as a doctor, and now she's been back to school for uh, uh, seminary and Christian things. So she's a, she's a lady who loves learning, and she's going to bring that to us today. Please welcome. Thanks, John. All right, let's pray for these words this morning. <clears throat> um, Lord God, we pray that you would... Um, be in our ears and be in my mouth. Um, we already know that you're in these words um, as we read them and hear them. Um, we pray that you would give us um, new insight um, into the love that you have for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to talk about Judas, the disciple that has been at the bottom of the Christian baby names list for the last 2,000 years. <laughs> But Judas has a lot to teach us about Jesus, and so we're going to look at his story. And I use the word story because John really is a masterful storyteller. He doesn't just want us to have his eyewitness facts. He wants us to see in our minds what is going on. He wants us to know the characters, to weep and rejoice with them, to feel their heartache and their inner turmoil. So if you can think back to grade school, you'll remember that stories are structured around a common pattern. There's some kind of beginning where you get introduced to the characters, and those characters begin to interact. And as they do, some kind of problem or conflict arises. And as the story goes, the tension mounts, and the conflict becomes unavoidable. At some point in the story, near the climax at the top, we say, there's a tipping point where the conflict becomes just too much, and the author has to move us towards resolution. So before we dive into this specific passage, I want us to think about where we are in this greater arc of the biblical story. In the beginning, God creates a world that is beautiful and good. He creates people not out of compulsion or need, but out of love to share this beautiful world that he's made. Adam and Eve know God as a good and loving and generous creator and share intimate and peaceful communion with him and with each other. But Satan enters the scene, and pretty soon the conflict of our story is born. Adam and Eve are persuaded that maybe God is holding out on them. Maybe what they have is not enough. Maybe there's more. Maybe God doesn't actually love them that much. And they choose fear and greed and pride and suspicion and self-importance over love and trust and assurance of God's goodness. The conflict of sin, of alienation between God and his beloved people, is born. God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden with the promise to resolve this conflict one day, once and for all. And ever since then, this story has been waiting for that one day. God's people grow and multiply. Some of them loved God, and some didn't. Some did great things, and some did terrible things. And many of them just lived normal daily life trying to figure out where they were in the story of God. Some of them seemed to move the needle closer towards that conflict resolution, but none of them were able to make it over the hump of the story arc and into the real resolution of the problem that sin had brought into the world. And so Jesus enters the scene, and we start to hear promises 
that he might be the one to bring this conflict to final resolution. And that is where we are now in this overarching narrative of scripture. We hold in our hearts and our minds this picture of a beautiful beginning, lots of flawed and yet often lovable characters, and this ongoing conflict between God and his people and God's people with one another. But now the emergence of someone who has begun to say that he has the power and the authority to end this conflict once and for all. John's gospel follows a similar arc. John starts with a reminder of the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He adds in characters, Jesus, disciples, the Jewish leaders, specific people that Jesus meets along his journeys. And by now the names of his disciples have become familiar. Jesus' actions and words have patterns, and each of them have their own mini story arc as we read them chapter by chapter. As Jesus heals and preaches and forgives, we get glimpses of what a final conflict resolution might look like. But we aren't there yet. As John gives us more and more hope that Jesus really is who he says he is, John also gives us more tension as Jesus hints at his own death and his anger against him continues to rise. In the story arc of John's gospel, we are also right here. So now let's zoom into our passage for today. Um, in John 13, go ahead and turn to it. Um, someone shout out the page number if you don't mind. 900, that's a great number. Jesus is gathered with his disciples, having an intimate dinner with them. So and it's already been an unusual night. As we learned last week, Jesus takes on the posture of a servant, washing the feet of his friends and then instructing them to love one another in a similar way. Already in last week's passage, we see Jesus hint at the fact that someone would betray him. We see him think it to himself in verse 11, and we hear him say it aloud in verse 18, that he is not speaking to all of them, and that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This theme of beautiful and sacrificial love has already begun to mix with the ugly theme of betrayal. And so this morning we engage with this high point of tension, not only in this chapter, but also in John's gospel, and we might even say in the biblical narrative as a whole. So let's look at these verses in chapter 13 by looking at the betrayal of Judas and then the love of Jesus. Verse 21 says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Jesus tells the whole group, this group that has been following him, this group that just had their feet washed by him, he tells them that one of them will betray him. And the disciples clearly don't know who he's talking about. Talk about awkward. This scene should come with one of those don't try this at home warnings. These are not your instructions for how to have a peaceful Thanksgiving dinner. Then Simon Peter, one of Jesus' core inner leaders, says to John, hey, you're sitting next to him. Can't you figure out who he's talking about? Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And so our scene zooms in from the whole table to an even closer view just of the center, where Jesus is sitting with a disciple on either side of him. Notice the details. The disciples and Jesus are lying on the floor around a table, leaning on their left elbow, 
and eating with their right hand, as would have been custom. The disciple whom Jesus loved, and the evidence suggests that this is John, is next to Jesus on his right. John leans back against Jesus and asks him, Lord, who is it? Now, if you're sitting this morning next to someone you feel comfortable leaning against, and if not, just imagine it, I want you to lean all the way to your left. Where is your head in relation to the person on your left? This is pretty funny to watch from up here. <laughs> it is in their chest. It is in the heart of the person next to you. So let's not let that imagery escape us. As John asks Jesus this question, the text says he leans back against Jesus. The head of John is right in the heart of Jesus. Jesus says to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, verse 26. So if John is sitting to the right of Jesus, Judas is on Jesus' left, close enough to receive this morsel easily. If John's head is leaning into the heart of Jesus, then Jesus' head is leaning into the heart of Judas. These men are in the three seats of honor at the table, and Jesus is in the center, receiving the heart of John on his right and longing for the heart of Judas on his left. Jesus gives John special insight into what is about to happen and who this betrayer is. But Jesus gives Judas special love by placing him in the seat of honor, positioning himself right in his heart, and feeding him with his own hands. And this is all after having already washed his feet. If you think the room is full of tension, just imagine the inner turmoil of Jesus knowing what is about to happen next. But before we talk about what Judas does next, let's look back and see what we have come to know about him so far. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? That's John 6 verse 70. He has known all along that one of his own disciples would betray him. And if you put together the many references to Judas in each of the four Gospels, you can see what's happening. When Judas first joined the Twelve, he seems to be sincere, a dedicated follower. He had a good business head and a reputation for honesty. He was chosen to be the treasurer and was in charge of the money box. Judas likely believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, who would deliver Israel and make it the head of the nations of the earth. Judas, Judas would have known all of the great passages that promised a final glory for God and for his people. But when Jesus began to speak about the cross and when Judas saw him offending the leaders of the Jews and he saw the growing opposition, Judas knew that his dream of glory was fading. John tells us in chapter 12 that Judas had already begun to steal money. In the story of Mary who wiped Jesus' feet with ointment, John says in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box and used to take what was put into it. So for some time, Judas had been stealing. We learn later that he had contracted to buy a piece of property near Jerusalem in a fine location, which he thought would be a good spot to build on when the kingdom came. He went to the high priest and made a deal with him to betray Jesus for the money needed to purchase the property. 
And so as we come back to this dinner table in the upper room, this is the man seated next to Jesus, close enough to have Jesus' hair brush his face. Without speaking, Jesus and Judas are both intimately aware of what is about to happen. Verse 27, Then after he, Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What, are you, going to, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. What a tragic scene. The unassuming disciples think Judas is going to buy more food for them, or maybe for the poor. John is trying to make sense of everything he has just seen and heard, and Jesus is filled with a love that has troubled his spirit to the core. Perhaps never in the history of the world have two men been so physically close to one another and yet so cosmically far apart. As Judas walks out, it's important to recognize Jesus isn't losing Judas. Judas had never really let himself be taken in, or at least not taken in by Jesus. His body had been close, but his heart was far away. Judas had already been under the influence of evil, but here he passes the point of no return. He literally has food in his mouth from the God of the universe, a last great offer of love. While at the same moment, Satan enters in and finds Judas to be a willing partner. Judas holds inside of him this offer of true light and love and hope and belonging, but also the lies that he can build for himself his own glory his own kingdom, his own worth, and that he can do it without Jesus. The conflict that began in the garden in Genesis 3 is still present in this upper room in John 13. John adds in this short standalone phrase at the end of verse 30, and it was night. It very well may have been evening and dark out, but I don't think John is primarily concerned with reminding us of the time of day. In four short words, and it was night, John is zooming out again from the focus of three men at a, at a dinner table to a much more cosmic perspective. John starts his gospel with a description of Jesus that says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. But now here we are, almost at the climax of our story, and we have darkness. Judas has chosen the darkness, and it would seem that darkness is creeping up all around Jesus. Despite all the good preaching and healings and even resurrections that he has done in the last 12 chapters of this book, the world outside this room still holds great darkness. The world outside this room still holds great darkness. But the best thing about the darkness of verse 30 is that we also have verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Um, really, Jesus? Now? Like, not maybe a few chapters ago when you were raising Lazarus from the dead? Or, like, healing the man born blind? Or when you were talking about how you have, like, all the authority of God? You don't think, like, maybe you looked a little more full of glory then? But Jesus says, Now... He says now three times in the next few verses. We see it in verse 31, in 33, and 36. 
As Jesus walks out of the room, as Judas walks out of the room, Jesus' path towards the cross is now solidified. Whatever glory Jesus had before, this starts a new phase of glorification. Judas had reached the point of no return, and Jesus is about to as well. The cross is now so certain that in the rest of this passage, Jesus speaks of it as though it were already accomplished. The Son of Man is glorified, not will be glorified. And so now tells us that we are starting a new moment. This story can only go in one direction, and we are inching to the very top of our story arc. Jesus knows it. We, the modern-day readers, know it. But the disciples are likely a little less clear on what exactly is about to happen. And so here Jesus starts with them one final family conversation. He calls them little children, not to be pejorative or put them down, but to include them in the intimacy of the family of God. The days to come are going to be full of confusion and heartbreak. They are going to need whatever words he has for them. Jesus started his ministries with the disciples by calling them to follow him. And here, at almost the climax of his work on earth, he tells them that where he is going, they cannot follow. We see it in verse 33 and again in verse 36. He has asked them to leave their family and friends, to try new and hard things, to trust his authority and believe his words, and to risk their own reputations. But now he has work to do that he must do alone. And he wants to arm his disciples with the best weapon against the darkness that they are about to encounter and equip them for the hard work that is to come. And so he tells them that he has a new commandment for them. Love one another. That really doesn't sound very new, does it? So let's read the rest of it. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus has been modeling love for them all along. But the quality and the quantity has just intensified in the foot washing in the scene with Judas, and it is about to explode on the cross. The solution to the conflict between God and his people is the self-sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. The ultimate solution to the ultimate conflict is the love of Jesus that empties himself of the glory he does deserve to be filled with the judgment that we deserve. Quite in contrast, Judas was offered love, but allowed himself to be filled with evil. Judas was a willing partner with Satan in search of his own glory. But Jesus is the willing sacrifice for us to restore the glory that God had always intended his people to have. Judas rejected the light and chose darkness. Jesus embraces the darkness to bring back the light. The conflict that began in the garden is about to be resolved once and for all as Jesus walks out into a very different garden after this final conversation with his disciples. A garden that, while less beautiful to the eye than Eden, most likely, is full of more glory than our hearts can handle. And while only Jesus can solve this ultimate conflict between light and dark and life and death and good and evil and truth and lies, Jesus commands his followers to have the same type of love. This is not a command to an emotional kind of love. You can't really command emotions very well, can you? This is a command to have cross-shaped love with one another. And this was a practical commandment for the short term, 
as much as it was vision casting for Christian love for the long term. Jesus was about to leave them, and in the leadership vacuum this would create, he wanted his followers to love one another self-sacrificially, not to be fearful or argue about who would be in charge. And given the disciples' track record on this, um, I think we can say they clearly needed this commandment. But so, I think, do we. What if our disagreements as Christians were about who got to serve the other first, rather than who was right or whose opinion mattered most? Sacrificial love would prevent many of our conflicts, and it would certainly help the conflicts that do arise. Think about the greatest conflict in your life right now. Sacrificial love by one or both parties would no doubt help, if not fix it. Jesus was giving them a practical commandment for how to live as a unified community once he was gone. But he's also giving them a vision for their witness to the world, now and forever. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. No one is allowed to live unloved in the family of God, not by Jesus and not by his followers. We as Christians often talk about how we long for unity. We long for peace and justice. We long for the poor to be fed and for the sick to be healed and for all people to know the glory of God that is found in Jesus. But do we long to love with Christ-like, self-sacrificial love? Because that is the command Jesus left his disciples with to face a world filled with darkness. Jesus gives us this commandment not to solve the problems of the world, but to be participants with him in the glory of the cross. And in doing so, we will find that the conflicts around us are lessened by the power of this type of love. This is a commandment that brings light into dark places because it brings with it the glory of God the Father and Jesus his Son. Judas walked out the door alone into a world of darkness to buy his own glory. And this passage longs to save us from that fate. Don't follow Judas. Follow Jesus to the cross, where your life was paid for, where glory is found, and where love wins. Amen.